to come before God and worship Him and to seek to hear from Him. Um, we've got a challenging passage in front of us this morning, and you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure you've already seen a little bit about the, the uh, interesting uh, subject matter that we'll be dealing with this morning. But let's come before God now in a moment of prayer as we seek to hear from Him. Lord God, we, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you have to say for our lives, not just another, another man's ideas about the way the world should be. Lord, we don't want to have our own ideas about how the world should be, but Lord, we want to be conformed into your image. We want to have our minds transformed to think like you would have us think, to honor the things that you honor. So Lord, we pray that, that as we hear your word this morning, that that you would use it to transform us and to prepare us, to prepare us to endure for the long haul, to prepare us to to be like you and to worship you and to to live as you would call us to live. We pray, Lord, that this just wouldn't be an exercise in understanding an obscure ancient text, but it would be actually for our benefit, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine for a moment it's time for a new car. You have a look around at what out, what's out there. You see, uh, you see what the manufacturers are offering and then you find it. You fall in love. You can't stop thinking about it. This is the car that you want. Nothing else will do. This is the one. You've decided you want the Land Rover Range Rover Evoque. This is, this is the one. It's got style. It's got class. It's the right size. It comes in great colors. It's everything that you want. Now that your heart is set on this new car, you set about achieving, getting that goal. You start saving. You start scratching around, pulling together all your funds so that you can get what you want. It's a hard task. You're going to have to make sacrifices to get that goal. But you think it's worth it. You think it will be worth it in the end. Now, while you're working away to achieve this goal, your friend comes along and says, oh, you want the Land Rover, eh? That's a lot of work. It's a bit much. Why work so hard for that when you can have this? It's the Land Wind X7. It's the Chinese knockoff. Why spend three times as much when you can get this for a third of the price? You can have your dream now, All you have to do is give up on build quality, engine power, gearbox size, paint quality, and the very authenticity of the object that you wanted. It's easier. You can get it quicker. You can experience it now rather than wait. Who cares that it's not the same thing? It's all all the same in the end, right? I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. One is the real deal. One is a knockoff. But the knockoff is alluring. There's something about it that's tempting. It's easier. It's quicker. It's more accessible. It's more immediate. But in the end, while these might look similar, they're fundamentally different. Different origin, different mechanicals, different development process, different quality levels. One's the real deal. One's a counterfeit, a knockoff, an imitation, a fake, a fraud. 
And our Bible passage today kicks off with a counterfeit too. Though it's not a counterfeit car, it's a counterfeit bride. A knockoff, an imitation, a fake, a fraud. This part of Revelation chapter 17 to 19 exposes the anti-bride for who she really is. Her beautiful exterior is torn away to reveal the ugliness beneath. Her failures are named. Her true character is revealed to the world and she is undone. And God gets rid of the fake and all those allies who've sponsored her. Jesus will marry the true bride who is pure within and without. Jesus will defeat all the counterfeit authorities that have sold their souls to the devil and who stand against him. But all that to come. Before we get there, let's remind ourselves where we've come in Revelation so far with a quick recap. As we've stepped our way through the book in broad brushes, we've seen this big picture overview of how God operates in history, how he deals with his enemies and what he has planned for the future. It's an encouragement to believers. The book of Revelation is an encouragement to believers. But because the genre is apocalyptic, we can't expect that we can sit down with a history encyclopedia on one side and the Bible on the other and try and match up obscure events in history. Instead, it's a picture book. Vody Bolcom has, that, uh, he has that helpful saying that Revelation is a picture book, not a code book. It, it shows us imagery, varied and vivid, overlapping and multi-layered. And often we get to say, see the same things from different angles. It's like watching the instant replay at the State of Origin. You know, you get the overview over the top and then they cut to another, another shot from the sidelines and then they go in for the close-up and the slow-mo. Same game, different perspectives. In Revelation, John swings back around for another pass, a new angle, then picks up themes from all over the Bible and intertwines them to tell the story. Because it is so rich and multi-layered, we can't touch on everything this morning. All the visions of this, aspects of this vision is so deep and rich, but you can feel free to contact me throughout the week, to text me if you want, and if you have any follow-up questions from this morning. One of the images that is used in Revelation is that of the unholy trinity, the dragon serpent, the chaotic beast and the false prophet who were opposed to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The the unholy trinity, they do things that look a little bit like God. They exercise authority, but they are directly opposed to God. Let's remind ourselves a little bit of the character of of these characters. In Revelation 13, it said, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his authority, his throne, sorry, his power and his throne and great authority. Later on, it also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And another snippet from Revelation 16, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. 
And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So we have this unholy trinity operating in the world, oppressing God's people, deceiving the rulers of the world to side against God. They're God's enemies. And God brings his wrath on them. And and, and last time in Revelation, we looked at that wrath through the the picture of the seven bowls of judgment that God pours out on those who stand against him. And even while he's pouring it out and showing showing himself as the God of justice, people still just refused to, to turn to him and just continued in their rebellion. Now today we're coming back in for another look at an aspect of that judgment. Once more, we're coming in from a different angle and we're circling around to focus on some of the stuff that was mentioned in the last chapter. So let's dive in and look at five elements of God's judgment. The first thing we see is the anti-bride. Our story picks up with that familiar character, the beast, the false messiah... And the beast turns up in, in the start of chapter 17 as a lawn red. But this time he has a rider, someone mounted on the beast. And it's the anti-bride, the counterfeit. Let's see how she's described in, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spiritual wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was, wait for it, full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with the gold and jewels and pearls, and holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So we have this picture of the great prostitute riding that beast that we saw earlier in Revelation. She's alluring. She's wealthy. She's well-dressed, prosperous, But she's not the kind of woman you want anything to do with because she's whoring herself out to anyone and everyone. She's promiscuous. And she brandishes her sinful rebellion by holding this golden cup of abominations. But who is this woman? What is she a picture of? What does she represent? Well, the next verse tells us. In verse 5 it says, On her head was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And later on, at verse 18, it says, And the woman you saw is the great city who has dominion over the kings of the earth. So so there we have it. The identity of this anti-bride is an image of Babylon. This woman is representative of the city-state that oppresses righteousness and God's people that deceives the nations. But she's alluring because of her power and her wealth and her apparent beauty. But she's corrupt from the inside out. Throughout the Bible, different countries and cities are described as different kinds of women. Some are beautiful, pure brides, and some are defiling prostitutes. Babylon is the embodiment of the prostitute. 
the unfaithful one who will give up anything to prosper and get ahead. Babylon is the city and kingdom who gains wealth and power by any means necessary and who tries to deceive the nations while shaking their fist at God saying, I'll do it my way. Babylon is like Babel where the insolent men decided to build their monument and assault heaven. Babylon is like Sodom and Gomorrah whose lawlessness and sexual immorality is infamous. Babylon is like Tyre, the Old Testament city which profited from sea trade, becoming wealthy and luxurious. Babylon is like ancient Rome, who said, submit to us and receive great benefits, or resist us and get the sword. Babylon is the Greek Empire, the Mongol Empire, the colonial empires. Babylon is London. Babylon is Hollywood, Wall Street, Nashville, New York City. Today, Babylon is manifested in our midst. Melbourne says, come and enjoy our culture and art and style, just don't bring your Christianity. Queensland is Babylon. We'll do whatever is politically expedient. Come and plunder our natural resources and get rich. Or buy all the trinkets you like and enslave yourself to the banks in debt. Kill your babies if they're in an inconvenience. Promote your sexual immorality openly and oppress all who oppose this progress. Friends, we live in the midst of Babylon. She's seductive. She's alluring. She promises prosperity and luxury, pleasure and delight. But don't be fooled. Babylon opposes Christianity. Babylon drinks the blood of believers. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And in her was found the blood of the prophets of, and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Babylon will chew you up and spit you out. It's no place for believers. She is opposed to you and your Christ. She is the adulteress of Proverbs. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught in a fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, the grave, going down to the chambers of death. So we know who the anti-bride is. The next aspect of the judgment is the fall of the anti-bride. So Jesus brings about the fall of this blasphemous city, this enemy of God. The nations have been deceived by her and she must die. She must be judged. This woman is, is supported by the beast, the beast who in turn, who is sponsored by Satan, the dragon serpent. 
And we're told in this passage that the fall of Babylon will actually be brought about by God, but he will use her own allies, her own friends, her own supporters to make it happen. Like God uses the heart of Pharaoh in Exodus to display his power and judgment, here we see he uses the beast and the ungodly kingdoms of the earth to turn the prostitute, to turn on the prostitute and tear her down. It says in 17, 16 to 17, and the ten horns that you saw, they will hate, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So so God is at work bringing about his righteous purposes in the world. He's working out his righteous purposes even in the midst of the rebellion of the beasts and the king's. Like God used Babylon, the historical nation, to judge Judah in the Old Testament, God uses the beast and the kings of the earth to bring about judgment on the great prostitute. That doesn't mean that the beast and his cronies will escape judgment. They will get what's coming to them. But the fall of the prostitute Babylon brings mourning and lament from all of those who loved her. They loved her wealth and her prosperity. They loved her promiscuous ways. They mourn for her and all the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The anti-bride is judged She thought she would reign as a queen, but she has been decimated. She has become desolate. And her benefactors cry over their lost prosperity. Kings and merchants and sailors, they mourn their loss. They go on and on about it in chapter 18, listing everything that they've lost, concerned not for the justice of God, but for their own gain. This is the deceitfulness of riches that those in chapter 18 would mourn the loss of their income instead of rejoicing in God's justice. Babylon is corruption, the counterfeit of what is God. It takes the good and beauty of sex and takes it out of marriage and peddles it as an easy-to-reach counterfeit. It takes the hard-earned, well-spent prosperity to provide get-rich-quick schemes and cash splash toys. It takes caring for others and it turns it into self-care. It takes charity and turns it into political point scoring. It takes loving fairness and turns it into equality. It takes hard work and, and turns it into a slavish corporate ladder. It takes community and turns it into social media. Friends, There's nothing wrong with wealth and prosperity, sex and pleasure, but these things have their proper place. And and what we're talking about here is taking them out of their proper place and peddling a fake. It's a corruption. How would you respond if if the worldliness came to an end tomorrow? I mean, there is good things that we get to use in this world, like the internet and cars and houses and good food. 
But for the most part, all these things that we enjoy have come because of worldliness. They are the spawn of worldliness. And they become an end in themselves. How would you feel tomorrow if worldliness came to an end? Would you mourn that you've lost value in your shares? That the equity in your house is gone? That you can't buy a new phone? That there's no more TV and movies to tickle our sensual nature? Is our hope and value tied up in Jesus or is it tied up in a world that is passing away? Are you invested in progressing your portfolio or progressing in righteousness? Friends, I I want to know, will you join with the great multitude in heaven to rejoice over the fall of worldliness? Will you celebrate the fall of Babylon with them? The fall of Hollywood? The fall of Silicon Valley? The fall of Canberra? The fall of Grand Central? After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! For the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Babylon falls. The anti-bride falls. Her doom is sure. But in the midst of her defeat and destruction, there is a call that goes out to God's people. And this is the third aspect of God's judgment that we see. That in the midst of that, Jesus is calling his people out. I heard a voice, another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Christ calls his people out of Babylon. That's not their place. That's not their home. And he calls them out for two reasons. He says, come out of her lest you take part in her sins or lest you share in her plagues. Come out of her so that you don't defile yourself with the same things that she's defiled but also come out so you don't suffer the same judgment. Christ calls out us. Christ calls the church out. We are the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. We come out from within Babylon. But do you notice what that means? That means that's where we start. We start in Babylon. We need to be called out of it. We were in Babylon, but we need to be called out and cleansed. And Paul notes that. He knows that when he's writing to Christians in Corinth, he calls them out of unrighteousness. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. 
such were some of you, but you have come out of this unrighteousness. Such were some of us. We talked about that last week, that we, that we sin and we have shame, but Christ takes away our guilt. We come out and we are cleansed and we are washed clean. He calls us out of the worldliness with all its allurements and shiny attractions, with all its corruption and counterfeits. Please come out. Come to Jesus who will wash away your sins. He who died on the cross to cleanse His people from unrighteousness. Come out and throw yourself on the righteousness and the mercy of Christ. His kindness that He holds out for you. Come out so that you might escape the judgment of the world. And he offers you something better than the world. He offers you the real deal, true wealth, heavenly wealth. He offers you true life, eternal life in his presence. He offers you the best life. He offers you the friendship of God. I have recently seen a good example of what it looks like to come out from Babylon. I don't know if you know the people in this photo. The bloke is Kanye West. He is the high point of rap and hip-hop. He is considered the king of rap and hip-hop. He is the embodiment of Babylon. He's wealthy, popular, influential, and he's built a career rapping about sex and money, power, and all manner of worldly things. His music videos are filled with scantily clad women. He runs a fashion line. He married the most famous reality TV star in the world. And he recently said, I worshipped the idea of labels and brand names. I worshipped cars. I worshipped the city I grew up in. Yet God has called him out of Babylon. This man is coming out from Babylon. Kanye claims that in April this year, he was born again. He says he was radically saved. He started turning up to church. He started studying the scriptures. He's become more humble. He's become concerned about protecting and nurturing his family. He's become concerned about making music for Jesus. And he has unabashedly told the world that he is on Jesus' side now. He says... Now I'm in service to Christ. My job is to spread the gospel and to let people know what Jesus has done for me. I'm no longer a slave. I'm a son now, a son of God, and I'm free through Christ. Yesterday he dropped his first album since becoming a Christian. It's called Jesus is Lord. And on one track he says this. He says, follow Jesus, listen and obey. No more living for the culture we nobody's slave. Stand up for my home, even if I take this walk alone. I bow down to the king upon the throne. My life is his, I'm no longer my own. Here is a man who was sold out to Babylon, the poster child for the prostitute. Yet Christ has called him out. Time will tell if his conversion is genuine, if he will last the distance and endure through the trials. But one thing is clear. This man is showing the world what it's like to come out of Babylon. 
He's showing what it's like to disown worldliness and put on Christ. Now, he hasn't come out of the world. He's not like he's cut himself off from the world. He still needs to make money. He still makes music. He's still making clothes. But his whole worldview has changed. He's exchanging the counterfeits and devotion to the things to being devoted to the one who gives the good things. He's putting his hope in Christ, not in the world. And when we come out of Babylon, we don't stop working our jobs or buying clothes or enjoying friendships or the blessings of this world, but these things are cast in a new light. They're put in their proper place as benefits, as side things. Our goal is now Christ. He is our end rather than things and stuff and experiences Friends, when we come out of Babylon, we'll we'll never be able to fully shake her off until the day when Christ brings judgment on her. She will always be there to allure. She will always be there tempting and beguiling. But please do not be tricked by her deceit. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So Christ calls us out of the world. And the next thing we see in these five judgments, the fourth aspect of judgment is we get to see the true bride who's coming to take her place. Having spent two chapters dealing with the anti-bride, her fall and judgment, now the vision turns to expect the coming of the true bride in chapter 19, the pure and lovely one who is faithful. She is the one who we should belong to. She is the one who is no fake, no counterfeit. She is the real deal. Like the anti-bride, the true bride is also representative of a city, a new Jerusalem. But Steve will cover that in later weeks. This true bride is the one who is joined not to all the kings of the earth, but to one king, Jesus. Now, we don't get to see her yet in this passage, but the multitude announces her coming They prepare us for her arrival by rejoicing in in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage supper of marriage of the Lamb has come and her bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said these, said to me, these are the true words of God. She is pure and prepared. 
The singing multitude is anticipating the arrival of the beautiful bride clothed in white and glorious raiment. She is full of splendor. She is like the woman on her wedding day when everything was just right. The dress was spot on. The hair was just how she envisioned it. The shoes aren't hurting her feet. The weather is perfect and her handsome groom is waiting to ready to receive her. This true bride is the church, the people of God. She is the one that Christ sought out and saved from the depths of her sin. She is the one he died for. Yet what do we notice about her clothing? For the fine linen that she wears is the righteous deeds of the saints. She is clothed in the deeds of the saints. Who makes the the wedding dress for Christ's bride? We do. The good works of God's people clothe his bride. Your righteous deeds, your good works, your service to Jesus in loving your neighbor clothes the church and prepares her to meet Jesus. Never think that once you're saved, you're just kind of biding time here until Jesus comes back. We are being transformed and we are transforming. We are clothing Christ's bride and preparing her for Christ. Friends, we're not just here to play church, but we need to embody the church as those who do the righteous things that Christ has called us to. To do that which clothes Christ's bride. Fifthly, the fifth aspect of judgment is the fall of the beast and false prophet. With the coming of the true bride announced, Jesus has some final work to do to get things ready. He's, uh, he's the groom and he's uh, getting everything ready for the wedding. You know those couple days in before where he runs around and does everything that he was supposed to do over the last six months? <laughs> just kidding. But Jesus just seems like the bride is coming and he's like, okay, I'm just going to nick over to Armageddon. I'm just going to wipe out all of God's enemies and then we'll, we'll come back and we'll do the wedding. Jesus has to pop over and defeat his earthly enemies. And what we seem to be doing right now is coming around to see the event that is mentioned in the end of chapter 16 where God's enemies assemble, ready to face off against God. And so we cut back to that where God's enemies are assembled with the beast and the false prophet. It's time for a showdown. Nothing can stand against Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. He will triumph over them all. Now, I, I've dealt with this passage before uh, in a sermon a couple of years ago. So if you want to look at more detail on this passage, then feel free to go and find that on our website. But for now, I'm just going to read through this passage and let's revel in the victory of Jesus. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven 
arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged on their flesh. Jesus wins. No one can oppose him. He rides out with his saints by his side to judge and to make war, to bring his word to bear on the world. This is our Jesus, our heavenly king. This is no Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloth in a manger. This is Jesus riding out to judge and make war. This is something of Jesus' true character revealed to the world that was hidden when he walked amongst us on the earth. We're we're heading into that climactic part of Revelation where everything is starting to get tied up. Jesus is dealing with everything that stands against him. He dealt with the anti-bride. Check. He's, just in this passage, he's dealt with the kings of the earth. Check. He's dealt with the false prophet. Check. He's dealt with the beast. Check. There's really only one enemy that remains to be dealt with. And that's Satan. But again, that's for another week. Jesus undoes all the counterfeits. He wipes away the city which tries to mimic the heavenly city of Christ. He wipes away the kings who give their power to the beast instead of ruling on behalf of Christ. He he wipes away the false prophet who deceives people into worshipping the beast instead of bringing people to worship the true Christ. Jesus wipes away the beast whose miraculous healing looks like a resurrection but is actually a fake. Unlike Jesus' true resurrection. Jesus will utterly crush his enemies. And so I I ask you, do you want to stand against Jesus on that day? Do you want to stand against Jesus as his enemy? Or are you going to come out of Babylon and stand with Jesus Christ, clothed in the white robes of the saints. So as we kind of just pull this all to a close, what have we covered this morning? We've seen in these three chapters, we've seen primarily dealing with the anti-bride. We've seen that the anti-bride is Babylon, the embodiment of worldliness, of, of sensuality, the city of this world who is a counterfeit, of the true heavenly city. 
we've seen that God deals with her. He uses her own friends to bring her to ruin. But God deals with her. And Christ calls his people to come out of Babylon. She is a city that is destined for ruin. We have to come out from the world and stand with Christ. And coming out from the world, we actually come into his true bride, the church, who is clothed in the righteous deeds of Christians. These passages show Jesus defeating his enemies, all the counterfeits that stand against him. He undoes the Holy Trinity and the anti-bride to make way for the true bride who will soon be wed to Jesus. He overthrows the powers of this age, bringing their justice, bringing his righteousness in the place of their unrighteousness. So come out of Babylon to the church. Come and be joined to our faithful protecting husband Jesus. Come and take shelter from the day of wrath and come ready to rejoice in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words from John delivered to him through Jesus, from Jesus Christ himself. We thank you, Lord, that we can hear these words from Jesus here today, so many years removed. And Lord, we know that we still have the same challenges that face us of a world that is alluring and sensual and, and a world that, that, that tickles our desires and, and pulls us. But Lord, we ask that you would help us to turn away from the world, turn away from the deception of the world and turn to you. Lord, bring us out of Babylon like Lot and his family. Please bring us out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, please save us from the wrath to come by binding us and bringing us in to Christ. Lord, we look forward to that day when we get to see your bride in, in, in her full splendor with the righteous deeds of the saints clothed in bright white linen, in purity and splendor. Lord, we look forward to seeing that day when you destroy all of your enemies and make all things right. Lord, we, we ask that you would keep us and protect us for that day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.